This episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design's DaVinci Resolve software combines professional offline and online editing, color correction, audio post-production, and now visual effects all in one software tool. The standard for high-end post-production, DaVinci Resolve is used for finishing more Hollywood feature films, episodic television programming, and TV commercials than any other software. It is also brought to you by the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio, the revolutionary new all-in-one podcasting solution from Rode Microphones. To get in the running to win a complete podcasting setup, including a Roadcaster Pro and all-new Rode PodMic, head to giveaway.roadcaster.com and list the eight features of the Roadcaster Pro in the same order as the Rode team. Hey everybody, this is John Fusco, and I am here live at Park City, sort of. Live but edited from Park City. Um, And we're here for part two of the No Film School Sundance special. And this time we've got a few more guests. So I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves, starting with this lady to my right, my left. (laughs) Um, I just want to correct you. I'm not actually a lady. I'm a ghost. I am the ghost of Emily. (laughs) I've come back to haunt the podcast, and I'm really happy to be here again. I'm George Edelman, and I am here in the flesh. I'm Ryan Koo, and I am alive, I think, unless there's two of us who are ghosts. I'm Eric Lures, and I'm a medium, and I can <laughs> confirm there are at least two ghosts in my presence. Well, when you last heard us, uh, we were talking about what we were expecting would happen at Sundance, and now we're here. It's day six, um, day six for us, but it feels like day 400. Uh, as everyone at Sundance will tell you, most likely. Um, It's been a very good festival, I think, for the most part. Um, I would just like to go around uh, real quick and ask everyone, you know, what their favorite movie was. We talked about some of our most anticipated last time. Um, If there was anything that especially blew your mind, what is this year's Mandy or this year's Ask Dr. Ruth? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so let's start with The Ghost of Emily Booter. My favorite. Okay, so I'm going to I'm going to divide that into two categories, narrative and doc, <laughs> because I can't choose a favorite between the two. Um in terms of doc, um I saw in a pre-festival screening a film called Cold Case Hammershold. Um did any of you No, but I've seen the director around a lot and I was reading about the whole conspiracy theory the other day. It seems pretty fascinating. It is fascinating and I would almost caution against calling it a conspiracy theory because that almost discredits what it is. I, bu- I, f- I think that he has pretty strong evidence that, that what took place actually did take place. However, I don't think that I should tell you guys because it, kind of, it would ruin the film. Um, but I will tell you that it's an investigation into the death of UN Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, who was, um, whose plane crashed in... I believe it was 1969, um, but you'll need to fact check me on that exact year. Um, it was because he was advocating for the independence of the Congo. And the, a lot of the, the um, forces in, in Africa at that time, including the U.S., Britain, Belgium, France, found him to be a major threat to, um, frankly, white supremacy in Africa at the time. Um, so, at, so a lot of people kind of thought that he must have been shot down, but there was no real evidence. And this Swedish filmmaker called Mads Brugger um, teamed up with a guy who's been investigating this for about 10 years at this point. Um, And they, they took a deep dive into what actually happened. Um, They had some inside leads and about midway through the film, they think that they've hit an impasse and, you know, there's no way they can prove it one way or the other. But at that point, just when it seems like they're about to give up, they kind of accidentally stumble upon what Eric was referring to as a conspiracy theory, which was actually like a really nefarious um, situation perpetrated by the U.S., Britain, um, and one clandestine organization in South Africa um, to undermine um, the ability to have black independence in Africa. Um, And it becomes a film about something much more horrifying and real than just the the death of one person. I'll put it that way. Oh, narratives. <laughs> um, narratives. I loved Loose. Um, I thought that that was John's making a, a strange, cringy face at me, maybe because he hasn't seen it or heard about it. 
Um, but I will say that other people have seen it and loved it. Not loose like L O O S E, but like I think L U C E. Correct. Okay. <laughs> um, it's um, it stars Naomi Watts and um, I can't remember the her the man who plays her husband. Tim Roth. And um, it's about, um, they they adopt a child from Eritrea um, when he's 10. He was a child soldier. And um, they spend a lot of time in therapy with him, acclimating him to life in the U.S. And he becomes this kind of this poster child for, um, you know, a kid who can overcome his background. Um, he's a valedictorian of his high school. He's super diplomatic. People kind of see him. I mean, they refer to him explicitly as like a almost a proto-Obama type. Um, but he gets trouble in school um, midway through and midway tr- through the film, and it kind of sows seeds of doubt about whether he's actually overcome his past or not. Um, and it becomes a really fraught investigation into race, class, um, stereotypes, tokenism, expectations, and it's fascinating, and you don't know what to believe periodically throughout the film really until the end. Um, the performances are really good. The screenplay is very strong, and um, I think the film will do really well. It hasn't been bought yet, but I'm confident that it will be. So my favorite movie uh, was Death of Dick Long that I saw here. I didn't know much going in. I It's exactly the kind of movie that I love. It's dark. It's funny. Um, but it's not played for jokes. It's played for the seriousness of <laughs> the situation, as ridiculous as it is. Um I thought that the performances were really fun. It, it sort of reminded me of like a Coen Brothers. Um, I'm trying to think of the other influences that I felt it had, but it just like really, uh, it, I really entertained me and um, not the kind of thing I was expecting to see here. I don't think it's, it's in the next program, but it didn't seem like a typical Sundance movie to my mind. I think one of the things that made it so unique it's the kind of thing we've seen. It's like a subgenre of guys being fools while having hurt someone very badly um, or made a very big mistake. But they really steeped it in a specific geographic place in Alabama where Daniel Shiner, the director, is from. And it felt like they were really honest without being super judgmental. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of jokes about the culture, but... Um, I think they were really real and grounded and they avoided the easy targets and they let it be about these characters dealing with something really disturbing and strange and sick. And one of the leads has a child and as a parent, there were some scenes in this rather silly movie that kind of hit me emotionally. (laughs) And then I was like, oh, wow, this kind of is sad and twisted and dark and funny. And, you know, I like movies that do a lot of things at once. And this movie accomplished a lot of different things. It made me laugh. It made me feel weird. And, um, you know, I loved it. I was very happy to see it. So it was great. All right. I'm going to go with a documentary called Jawline, which is about uh, YouTube stars and this particular generation that we're uh, seeing of kids becoming famous very young for essentially being famous. And, uh, you know, the, the world is changing so quickly around us that it's very difficult to imagine uh, the longer-term consequences. And for some of these kids who may get millions of YouTube followers or whatever their, their channel is, um, it's happening so quickly that it's almost like you enter into a second act in life prematurely. And uh, the documentary follows a kid in... Tennessee, who sees some of these YouTube personalities who are going on tour and meeting up with their adoring, screaming fans, and that's what he wants. So it's an aspirational story about this kid who wants to do that. So he starts streaming and doing live Q and A's and building up an audience organically. And you know, in some senses, that's great because it's democratic and you don't need money and you don't need a studio. And if you want to have a following, you know, it's going to be based on the strength of your personality and, and your work ethic. But also, the documentary asks the questions of, uh, if you don't become those people you idolize, if you want that fame and you don't attain it, and you've made sacrifices at that young of an age, like if you've left school, for example, um, then what do you have to fall back on? And I think traditionally in the performing arts, we are accustomed to people being famous for a talent. And since the dawn of reality TV and social media, there are a lot of people that are famous for being famous. And so then the question is, what do you have to go on from there? 
Um, you know, it might it might work really well when you have legions of screaming fans and you're a teenager, but uh, once you get older, what do you do? And uh, I thought it was a really fascinating documentary asking uh, those questions, which I don't know if we have answers to, but uh, Jawline, it's really great. Can I can I ask, did you learn anything uh, that would help our, like, aspiring YouTubers, some, like, really quick tips or anything? You know, the thing is, we're old. We are, yeah. Like, the documentary starts, and the guy's streaming on a on a platform called You Now. <laughs> okay. And I'm watching, I'm like, is this, like, a fictional platform? Like, I've never even heard of this. And so... I think you never feel older than when you're watching this this uh, next generation of of uh, streamers and personalities. Um, but you know, it's the same thing that we preach, which is really it's consistency and it's work ethic. And um, you know, it's it they're facing the same problems we do, which is if you don't post, you know, the followers and traffic goes down, and it's sort of it's like a it, it, the similarity is that it's like filling up a bathtub with the drain open. Eric, you got to post more on Instagram and Twitter, man. <laughs> Instagram, I've been, I would love everyone to follow me on Instagram. This is my weekly uh, begging of followers. Uh, I have been tweeting more while I've been here. Uh, I've been engaging with the social uh, media hashtags like hashtag Sundance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't used hashtag Sundance 19. Oh, you haven't? No, I didn't know if that was the more appropriate one. I think it is. Well, I am risking it. <laughs> Uh, so for me, I, I'm going to go with a doc. I'll go with Penny Lane's Hail Satan, which is about, which I actually mentioned on the previous episode of the podcast, which is about the Satanic Temple, TST, which is technically believes in Satanism, but Satanism doesn't actually require you to believe in a higher power, like a, a Satan. Uh, you can, it believes more in like the political aspects of religious plurality, separation between church and state, and things of that nature, uh, being very independent. So it's I didn't expect it to be, one, as funny as it is, because they go to various political rallies. Um, for example, there was one in Alabama, uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, where the senator wanted to have the statue of the Ten Commandments placed outside of City Hall, uh, out of, outside of Capitol Hill. And then the Satanists were like, well, you can't actually put a religious uh, text in, on a statue with taxpayers' money. So they recommended to have their own figure, which is the Baphomet, which is the kind of goat-like creature in the Satanic Temple, uh, and erect that statue in its place. Just as a way to say, listen, how can you complain about having our statue there if you're allowing a Christian one to be placed there in its you know, in its place. Uh, so I don't know. I thought it was very funny, very dramatic, and also had a lot of great political messages. I think that was a real, we'll get to later, but theme of some of the documentaries that we're playing here at the festival. And it's going to be opening just in time for Easter uh, from Magnolia, I think at the end of March or early April. Uh, and I got to meet the leader of the Satanic Temple, Lucian Greaves. He was a very nice man. Uh, we, we took a elevator ride together. He was a little tired. He said he had a nap for about an hour, but uh, I recommend it highly. And uh, same question, Eric. Any advice for aspiring Satanists? Uh, well, you know, they have many chapters throughout the country, and there's one where there's a scene where the Detroit chapter leader actually kind of goes rogue and talks about how you should uh, you know, go crazy and we're going to execute the president. And they're like, no, no, that's not what we do. We don't, we don't advocate for violence. And they like excommunicate her. So it, there are strict rules to follow. And it's not, it actually sounded like a very calm, chill, Zen grassroots organization um, that I would sign up for, or at least become an ally of. Uh, so, you know, it, it turns out that we actually share, a lot of us probably share a lot of beliefs that the satanic temple has as well. Okay. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Um, so I, you know, I talked about Ask Dr. Ruth already, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But uh, I will say that I think my favorite movie here that I've seen is a movie called Coco di Coco Da. Uh, and it's also Swedish. So, um, Emily, we, we both like Swedish movies. Um, this movie is directed by Johannes Nilholm. And uh, anyone impressed by the pronunciation there me thank you (laughs) i actually went back and listened to an interview i did with him at tiff for his first uh feature called the giant um and i studied 
uh, how to pronounce his name so I could impress him (laughs) the second time through. Um, And this movie, I think, was a big step forward for him from The Giant. Uh, It was... It's very, again, it's a hard movie to define um, in terms of genre. I would call it a ghost story. I think we ended up calling it a, a, a go-rom, <laughs> which was like a ghost romance, like a ghost romance. Um, it's about a couple who uh, undergoes a tragedy. I won't say what that tragedy is. And then they go on a camping trip after to sort of uh, reconcile their love. Um, but it doesn't go well. And they end up being met in the forest by three nefarious uh, beings and end up in sort of a Groundhog Day situation where they keep getting killed (laughs) by these three weird uh, mythical people um, until some sort of resolution is, I guess, kind of comes upon them <laughs> not nothing really too uh too set in stone which i really appreciated um it's sort of it's very lynchian but it's something all its own there's like uh shadow puppetry it's the the, the live images are intermixed with shadow puppetry uh which neil Holmes said was to like sort of give the viewer a break or a different take on what was going on um it's really interesting and i was really happy uh that I w- decided to go see it in theaters because I had a screener, um, but I wanted after after having my experience with Ask Doctor Ruth, I decided no more screeners. I'm gonna go and do it live. Um, so yeah, and I interviewed Johannes, and that'll be coming out soon, I guess. And now we're gonna go around in a circle again. This is all my fault because I dropped <laughs> I dropped a couple mics running to uh, an interview in the dark cold of Utah. And then one, the director, actually, I got to the spot, um, and the director was really nice. He was like, go find that gear, like, just go back. So I went back, and I spent half an hour walking up and down Park Avenue, retracing my steps in the dark, but couldn't find a nice little, uh, our nice little road mic pouch. So if you have seen a mic pouch with two microphones in it, you can mail it to me, and uh, I'll give you my address. <laughs> <laughs> So DM me, baby. Here's Emily. Emily, what's your uh, what what movie do you want to see most? Um, because you know we're we're really taking a stab in the dark when we pick these movies. Um, so what was like the buzziest film you heard about that made you want to go seek it out uh, later on after the festival? Barn on the buzziest film um, I heard about this festival was The Farewell. Um, did any of you see that? Um, it's the Aquafina film, (laughs) otherwise known as, um, and it seems to be a giant crowd pleaser. Um, it's about, um, generations of a family. Um, apparently there's some really poignant scenes with a grandmother who's on her deathbed, but it's also pretty funny. Um, and it's supposedly, I mean, I've, everyone I've talked to that saw it ranks it among their favorites of the festival. Um, <laughs> I'm about to depart this world again. <laughs> um, I, I, but before I depart, my, my dying wish is for everyone to see, um, the last black man in San Francisco, because when my, I was talking about my favorite films, I forgot to mention that that was also among my favorite. It's impeccable filmmaking. Um, Joe Talbot, the director, it's his first feature based on a short called American paradise. Um, it's incredible. Um, it's a 24, uh, developed it and I guess produced it. So you're definitely going to be seeing it. Um, and it made me cry and I loved it. Um, bye everyone. And as Emily slinks off into the underworld, what about you, George? Well, I guess I'll see that movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, that sounds good. I've heard of so many things that sounded good that I didn't know were even here. There's so many movies here. That's one of the things I've learned here in my first time at Sundance is that every time I ask someone, what should I see or what have you been seeing, they'll mention something I didn't even know about, um, which is great. Um, maybe it means I need to read the program a little more carefully next time or memorize everything, but I just feel like there's so much good stuff. And yeah, that sounds great. I really wanted to see uh, Wu-Tang Clan of Mikes and Men. Apparently it's four hours long, so I'll wait for that to come out soon. I really wanted to see this uh, Leaving Neverland doc that everyone's talking about. Uh, that'll have to see soon. I really want to see um, Knock Down the House, um, interviewed the founder of the production company that put it together. Um, that sounds great. And I really wanted to see uh, Where's My Roy Cohen, another one from them. So there's a lot of things that just 
seem buzzy that I'm excited about. And uh, one of the cool things of being here is is finding out about stuff that uh, maybe otherwise you would have missed. I'm going to follow up on Emily and and uh, also say the farewell. But for me, um, I'm currently the person in charge of planning a very large Chinese-American family reunion. And that's what the farewell is about. So I was quite upset that um, by showing up here a few days late, that I missed a lot of screenings and that was one of them. Um, but I'm alive. And also I'll say, uh, also to Emily's point about last black man in San Francisco, uh, writer director Joe Talbot is here on this no film school podcast, uh, years ago as he was a Sundance screenwriters lab alumnus as am I. So I had him on, I think that that podcast was called the mysteries of the Sundance screenwriters lab explained. So, uh, head into the archives and you'll hear him in the development process before he made it and before he premiered here is at the, Sundance. Is the farewell a how-to, have a Chinese-American? <laughs> uh, from what, the log line is a little bit different than ours. I don't think we're necessarily trying to uh, stage something as part of our reunion to please a uh, mat- matriarchal character. But uh, my, my, my grandmother was also the pillar of our family and uh, lived to be 103 so there's a lot of uh, touch points that I really wanted to see that film. And of course, the way that Sundance is, you get here and the way that schedules work, you know, the one screening that you can make is in Salt Lake City or something. And it's way, it's, it's, it's always sort of a crushing heartbreak because you're, you're here, but there's something that you can't do always. It's like the ultimate FOMO situation. Uh, and the farewell was that for me. So 103 means you're going to be around a while. Even well, well, I mean, that's, that was one of four grandparents. The rest of them, I'll just put it this way, I, I bar- barely even knew because they okay. didn't make it anywhere close to 103. So I have a one in four chance of living forever, yes. And, uh, and if Sundance every year is any example, that I'm not going to be that one of four because, uh, um, yeah, actually, let's, let's, do it. let's go around and do a sick update. Yeah. So uh, I'm here. I showed up. Once my fever of 103 went away, I got a voicemail from the doctor uh, but I didn't get that voicemail notification until t- four days later. So I've been here, and then my phone says, hey, you have a voicemail from, from Thursday. And I check it on Tuesday after a screening that John and I were at of this film called Greener Grass, which is crazy. Great film. It's I a great film. It. Um, and the voicemail says, you have bronchitis and pneumonia. Not a, not a great voicemail. <laughs> I found that, yeah, found that out four days after. So, uh, you know, anyway, I, as long as you guys don't have any of that stuff, uh, I'm happy. There's a reason I'm on this side of the table. We'll put it that way. I just moved to this side of the table. Well, let me Eric. pass the mic. Let me pass the mic to Eric. Then should, should this be my, be my dedicated mic? Then maybe. Yeah, let's let's switch mics here. Yeah, Eric, you take the other one. I'll just keep. I'll just hold on to this one. Eric, are you sick? Uh, I'm not sick yet, but if I get a voicemail in four days t- telling me that uh, I have amnesia, then I will forget to tell you about it. Um, so yeah, actually, for me. As well, I was thinking of Last Black Man in San Francisco. Uh, my former employer, IFP, was an alumni project. Uh, so I'd heard great things about the screenplay for a very long time. Um, and unfortunately, I did not get to see it. Knowing that it has a distributor, A24, uh, makes me feel happy that's going to be coming out probably this summer. Also, A24 had uh, Souvenir, which is one that I wanted to see as well. Uh, yeah, about film school and student, um, and also, which I may finally see tonight, Honey Boy, the Shia LaBeouf, uh, biopic-ish, if you will, uh, about his, uh, upbringing and his abusive father. Uh, I may be seeing that this evening, but as of right now, that's also one that I've so far missed and seems to be getting definitely some buzz, at least for the subject matter and perhaps the way it's told. I am not sick. I don't think, uh, unless I receive a mystical voicemail too, which I think is kind of a cool <laughs> conceit for a, a movie, actually. Um, but yeah, I, I'm feeling okay. I've gone to bed like pretty early every night. I haven't really been like d- doing the party scene, been taking care of myself, and it's been a very good Sundance, I think, because of that. Uh, but I will also echo everyone and say that I want to see the last man, last black man in uh, San Francisco. I might go see it actually. Uh, there's a PNI screening in a couple hours. What time is the PNI screening? Maybe I'll come with you. The PNI screening is at one. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, that one thing that uh, listeners you should know is that P- 
PNI means press and industry, and there every movie at Sundance screens once for people with either press passes or industry badges, so that uh, distributors can go and see something that they might want to acquire, or uh, press people can go and sit in this uh, one screening venue and review ten movies in a day. Uh, this year, I decided to come as an alumni uh, to Sundance and not a press person, which doesn't get me into any of those. And just generally, the alumni badge is way worse. So congratulations, congratulations to all of you on your press passes. Hey, congratulations on being an alumni, though. <laughs> oh, <thank laughs> have you noticed that there have been a lot of, as Ryan mentioned, there's usually a single P&I screening for a lot of these films. But for some now, they're actually having a second one, including for Last Black Man. This will be its second P&I screening because the demand is so high. Yeah, actually, I just saw that Paradise Hills, which I saw not at the P&I, but they added one. So I, I don't know what the reason, the logic is behind that, but I think that part of it might be that they want to um, get more eyes on it, right? Not just demand, but that they want more people to have an opportunity to see it if they missed it. And like, you know, maybe they don't have a deal yet. Yeah, I mean, I think it's to generate some buzz and among the press, get people like Eric tweeting about, you know, <laughs> what they saw. Um I think my uh, the movie that I want to see most, uh, maybe Velvet Buzzsaw, uh, which I think is coming out in like three days, Friday. So by the time that this podcast comes out, you know, it'll be out tomorrow. Um, and I, we were talking a lot about uh, Dan Gilroy, who's the director, um, and how he teamed up with Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler and how amazing that movie was. And then Roman Israel came out. That was his sophomore feature, and it didn't do quite as well. I didn't see it. Um, but it sort of was indicative of a sophomore slump in a way, um, indicative of a sophomore slump. And uh, Velvet Buzzsaw seems like it is him back to sort of like a peak form uh, with Gyllenhaal um, there's sort of a like a meme thing that's going around the uh, film Twitter right now of Jake Gyllenhaal correcting Dan Gilroy on how to say melancholy, which just show I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it just shows that they're on like the exact same wavelength. They didn't miss a beat because uh, Dan Gilroy was like uh, describing this woman's performance, and he was like, "Yeah, it's got a touch of mel- melancholy," and then <laughs> and then Jake Gyllenhaal just like turned, he's like, "It's melancholy, Dan." We've been through this. Um, so, And I think that's kind of the energy of this entire feature from what I'm picking up. Joe Hall plays like, you know, I, he's best at his most unrestrained, I think, and he plays an art critic. Uh, and it's like paranormal, I guess, or like supernatural in some way. Um, so, I'm yeah, I'm very excited to see it. Uh, and I won't have to wait very long. Um, the other thing I want to mention, sort of as a segue too, um, there's a number of indie episodics that I want to see, I think, more than features uh this year which ryan kind of attuned me to last night um there's of course the michael jackson documentary which i guess technically wasn't in the indie episodic category but it did sell to hbo um and will be released as a miniseries uh that's been getting some crazy uh crazy reactions i guess the first half is very hard to watch as there's graphic descriptions uh, from Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson's victims of what he would do to them. Um, and there was actually like a number of protests or just one, I guess, small protest that broke out uh, um, trying to support Michael Jackson. But uh, from the, from what I've heard from the people that have seen it, it's hard to, it's going to be hard for them to ever listen to Michael Jackson again, which is statement uh considering he is the king of pop um but that but that's the power of film right like we went through this era where some of our biggest pop stars like michael jackson and then you have surviving r kelly out there yeah as well to change culture to the point where after this documentary comes out you know that that period post michael jackson's death where all of a sudden it was he was on the airwaves and incredibly popular like that's going to end and it's going to be because of this film and yeah you're not going to hear r kelly anytime soon either as you shouldn't, and that's going to be because of a film. It's no wonder that Michael Jackson's estate is worried about this film or is condemning it, and it's probably because they just don't want to lose any of those royalties or that money. Um, because from what I've heard, it's pretty the, the evidence there is pretty unequivocal uh, that uh, he did some terrible things. This podcast is brought to you by the Roadcaster Pro Podcast Production Studio, the revolutionary all-in-one podcasting solution from Road Microphones. With its four Class A microphone inputs, eight sound pads to trigger music and effects, the ability to stream phone calls seamlessly, 
Bluetooth and USB connectivity for easy audio streaming and so much more, it is truly professional podcasting made easy. Simply plug in your microphone, turn up your faders, and hit record. To get in the running to win a complete Rode podcasting setup, head to giveaway.rodecaster.com and list the eight features of the Rodecaster Pro in the same order as the Rodecaster team. This podcast is also brought to you by Blackmagic Design. Blackmagic Design has grown rapidly to become one of the world's leading innovators and manufacturers of creative video technology. The company's philosophy is refreshing and simple, to help true creativity blossom by allowing the highest quality video to be affordable to everyone. Its products include the world's highest quality video editing products, digital film cameras, color correctors, live production switchers, and a host of other hardware for the feature film, post-production, and television broadcast industries. The Pocket Cinema Camera 4K is Blackmagic Design's new next-generation 4K handheld camera. It comes with dual native ISO with an amazing up to 25,600 ISO for incredible light performance, a full four-thirds HDR sensor, and 13 stops of dynamic range. It also comes with both ProRes or RAW recording to internal SD, UHS-2, and CFAS cards, or even external USB-C drives, eliminating the need for expensive external recorders. The uh, other indie episodic that I'm like really am bummed I missed out on because I forgot that it was premiering here is uh, for a show called Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared. It's based on this guy's wildly, wildly inventive YouTube uh, series. Um, and it was actually supposed to sell to Super Deluxe before Super Deluxe uh, folded earlier this year. I was supposed to do an interview with them. Um, and instead of going to Super Deluxe, the pilot actually is now has now premiered at Sundance. Uh, if you haven't seen any of these episodes, I highly recommend you go onto YouTube, search don't, search for "Don't Hug Me, I'm Scared," watch these crazy. Uh, it's kind of like a, a riff on Sesame Street or these old uh, um, uh, kids TV, puppet kids TV shows, but like crazy fucked up. Um, so that's one thing that I'm really excited to see. Uh, and I want to segue now into a uh, conversation, I guess, about the trends, the specific trends that we saw this year at Sundance um, that could be indicative of where the industry is headed. Uh, and I know that, Ryan, you have something to say about the indie episodic uh, category in general. Yeah, so for those who don't know, indie episodic was a new section at Sundance a year ago, and uh, what it's meant to be is sort of a programming section for pilots. And, um, you know, in year one, I think there's always a question of how many submissions did they get and is it going to be a market? Are people going to be actually acquiring things out of there? And I think in year two, it became clear how great of an opportunity it represents for filmmakers. Uh, one, because whenever there's a new section, it's probably a little bit less competitive to get into. And so instead of being up against, you know, 10,000 submissions, you might only be up against uh, dozens or a hundred. And, um, but also the, the, you know, for, for the longest time, if you make a piece of short form content and you want to go to a film festival with it, that's often the end of the road unless um, with that exact storyline, you can get a feature made. But with a pilot, what's so fascinating about it is you can go do something DIY style and go to this section where people are buying stuff. You know, as you mentioned, HBO bought something, but Netflix bought one of the indie epi- episodics. Yeah, Netflix bought the Delhi Crime Story. I think right, it's exactly. Called. And and so uh, you know, this is the first year that I had a chance to go watch some of the pilots in this section, and it's 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 an interesting cross section of. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, things that were produced by a studio, but then were maybe orphaned and are looking for distributors to things that were first time directors uh, making something to try to get their foot in the door. Um, and then the fascinating thing about Indie Episodic is just how much of uh, world building it is. You know, it doesn't have to be a self-contained short. It, it needs to leave you somewhere where you want to see more. So it's a great prompt to buyers and distributors like, hey, if you like this and you want to see more, you know, be the be the change you wish to see in the world. Like, come buy it. And I think that the you know, the one program that I went to, the the programming was really strong across the board. Uh, one of the most fascinating things I've seen at the entire festival was uh, It's Not About Jimmy Keen, a pilot by uh, Caleb Jaffe, a, uh, who, who was a college student at the time. And um, he said in the Q&A afterwards that, you know, he's, he's mixed race, he was uncomfortable in college, and he went to his parents and he said, uh, I don't like college. Can I use my tuition to make a pilot instead? And this is, you know, he was 19 at the time 
and watching it, it's it's you're aware of uh, it's not something that's being made for the industry, right? This is a sui generis, um, you know, very unique portrayal of a mixed race family dealing with the shooting of an unarmed black teenager, and it's fascinating to watch. It's unlike anything I've ever seen, and it's in a section that you know didn't exist a couple of years ago. And so I think for filmmakers to think about going to make a pilot and being able to potentially just get that into a festival and then get it picked up and you know made into a show is an amazing opportunity because it's you can get more work and you can get financing and continue as opposed to like well I made a calling card and now I'm kind of crossing my fingers and I don't know what's next um, and so I'll just say that as the as someone who uh, won the Webby Award for best drama series for something when I was doing an indie episodic um, 2007 2008 that you know we got repped by UTA. We were filmmakers magazines, 25 new faces of film. Like there were opportunities that came out of that, but that was the end of the road. You know, it was just a calling card. And 10 years later to see this kind of opportunity really blossoming, I think is uh, something that all filmmakers should be thinking about because it's, it's just, um, it's a great section, but it's also a great opportunity to um, not just make this one thing and get those festival wreaths, right? You can, you can make it and then get the rest of it made too. Yeah, so last year was the first year uh, for Sundance, and a lot of other festivals are following suit. Um, I talked, I did a few podcasts centered around shorts at South by Southwest, and one thing I was trying to ask our guests, and uh, a lot of them were in the industry rather than filmmakers themselves, um, was, you know, is there a best short form content? Uh, form essentially now um, and you know they were very non-committal I think at first to saying that you know the indie episodics are a less competitive and uh, might give you a better chance at getting into some of these festivals but what you bring up is an interesting point it's like a direct pipeline essentially um, to the industry because you have a pilot that's made and could essentially go on air like tomorrow you know how about you Eric did you have any uh trends that you saw yeah a lot of the documentaries that i saw this year i don't know if that was just by my choosing or if that is what makes up the crop this year were very pressing political documentaries uh one as i mentioned was hail satan which is very inherently political when you actually get down to the brass tacks of it another was one child nation which was nanfu wang's doc about the one child policy in china that ended in 2015 and now there's a two child policy uh nanfu had uh, a son of her own so she was interested in exploring the propaganda and the kind of views that uh, the Chinese population had during that time period. It lasted for, I believe, 35 years. And her mother is interviewed in the film as well, and she still believes that the one-child policy was necessary, even though she wound up having... They lived in a rural area, so they were able to have two children, but then Nanfu couldn't go to college. The son was chosen to go to college, and she had to kind of become a self-trained filmmaker. So it's a part personal doc, part very political, and seeing how now we're all pushing the, oh, two-child policy is great. That's what's really important, whereas just five years ago, the rhetoric was something vastly different. Uh, also, The Infiltrators, which is a literally a documentary hybrid that's in the next section. It's about 50% doc, 50% uh, narrative about uh, some dreamers of the DACA Act who are trying to infiltrate into a deportation center because a lot of their relatives have been stopped and they didn't have necessarily the right papers or the right IDs and they didn't commit a crime, but they've been placed into these deportation centers to see if they're going to be sent back uh, to Mexico, for example. And so they're going to infiltrate the center and try to get a rousing political support so that they can actually get out and not have to deal with ICE. Um, in the near future. And then lastly, Midnight Traveler was another one I saw. That was by an Afghanistan, uh, Afghani director, Hassan Fazili, I believe is his name. And he had made a film criticizing the Taliban in 2015. And since then, the Taliban has put a hit out uh, for his death. And so he has been trying to seek asylum elsewhere. And it is a film that's all shot on three cell phone cameras. And it's him and his family as they're trying to make it to the European Union, the EU, to claim asylum and get to safety. And it takes over three years to do so. Uh, but they 
do make it. Uh, unfortunately, he still has some visa issues, so he can't come to Sundance. Uh, but all of the footage was uh, transferred via different files and things of that nature. I spoke with the editor and the producer of the film to see how that all came together. And it still feels like he's still very much in limbo. They still don't have a permanent home. Um, and they're still seeking protection. So it definitely felt like a real pressing political year on the documentary front. So. I think that the trend I most uh, was aware of this year was uh, perpetuated by Sundance's slogan this year, which was risk independence. Um, I believe that maybe they should change that slogan to risk distribution by A24. Um because A24 has maybe like 10 titles here and they've picked up a few more and it's not, you know, no knock on A24, but I think that we're really seeing a shift in the type of movie that Sundance is choosing to program. Um, and maybe this is something that has probably been going on for a good while now, but I think it's kind of hard to call, you know, an, a movie that's already got distribution from a major company like A24, an independent film. And, you know, that's a really hard term to define an independent film. Um, but when we're at a festival like this, I think that like this year, more than anything, I've really realized how much I do appreciate movies that are truly independent and that are like batshit out there that don't have distributors yet, that um, are exciting and fresh in ways that maybe don't stick to a certain social agenda that Sundance uh, has sort of um, pinned on themselves over the past couple of years. Uh, it's not to say, again, that like the movies that A24 are bringing are bad because A24 is great and they're doing a great service for independent features. Uh, they picked up The Farewell um, a few days ago, but they are here with a number of movies and it seems like all of their movies are the ones that are getting the most buzz too and that are going to be nominated for awards at the end of this festival so what i think what i'd really hope for in a festival is that they are able to elevate certain filmmakers that don't have distribution or that don't really have um you know haven't made a name for themselves yet uh in a way that a movie that is already being distributed by a24 could do without the festival um i would really like to see more of that uh in Sundance's future and it's weird it's weird and it's kind of unsettling for this trend to exist for me because I think we're we're pushing further away from independent film yeah it's it's really interesting I mean we have a new uh head programmer this year Kim Yutani and but I think there's, there's what you're picking up on are the are the industry trends of the way that things are getting financed uh you know I guess a couple of years ago the talking point was like why is it why is a Netflix movie at Sundance, you know, because you mentioned Velvet Buzzsaw, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's here playing probably today, but and it's, it's going to be out. on Netflix yeah. in two days. And uh, but but I, I completely agree with you. I think I probably because I was late and missed a lot of movies. I've seen five or six, and three or four of those were A twenty four. I mean, mm -hmm. like it's you know, it's an established thing that you expect at this point. It used to be that there was a divide between what was in competition and out of competition. And some of that was based on whether you had distribution or not, because the idea of being in competition and potentially winning awards was a way to elevate your film to the point where hopefully you would get a bump from the festival, you know, from the curation, from the jury, and it could help you get acquired. But because so many uh, financiers are financing movies earlier in the process so that they have all the rights and control what happens with the, with the film ultimately, which is exactly what Netflix wanted with my film Amateur, you know, they wanted every territory and if you go to a festival and pick something up a lot of times certain territories are already pre-sold so that's not on the table now there's there's so much more content being made um that if you look at dramatic competition you know a lot of these movies already have distribution there's no longer that divide and uh, i i don't have any deep insight i don't know where it's going but you're right that things are definitely changing it's scary and like you know a movie a movie like the souvenir which eric mentioned uh, earlier which was is being distributed by a24 already has a deal for a sequel before you know it even premiered at sundance so what are we doing here <laughs> And there was even one film, which now I'm forgetting the title of, that A24 uh, produced, but then sold to HBO as its own kind of uh, corporate synergy. Uh, and we are seeing a lot of deals that seems to like harken back to, not that I'm uh, 
an expert on this, but to deals of Sundance Pass in terms of $15 million deals from Amazon, they've picked up a bunch. Apple just purchased Tala for $7 million, I believe. So there are still some big $15, $14 million sales going on. That seems pretty astronomical in terms of will they be making that money back? But of course, Amazon is sells toilet paper as well and sells other things. And Netflix needs subscriber base and things of that nature as well. So that money is there to spend, I think. I think it's like also, you know, to the point, important to keep in mind that Sundance is, is an industry event. It's a red carpet event. It's driven by celebrity. It's driven by names. And it's driven by some very big brands and big corporate partnerships. So it's not really a place for independent film, if we're being honest. I think that there's a lot of voices that kind of come through, especially in something like Indie Episodic. Um, something like Hala is a great example. But Sundance is also an institution, literally. So Hala came up through Sundance. She had workshopped here. It's a great movie, and it's a great uh, personal story. Um, and it did get a big deal. So it does kind of fit that model of what Sundance is supposed to be, but it also is, you know, Sundance has to make room, I think, in their program for the projects that they are, the, the filmmakers that they're training, essentially. Um, interesting, and we have a podcast we'll release later with Dan Mervish, who's a co-founder of Slamdance. So I went and spoke to him for a while. And Slamdance is a place where the films, these are films you, you likely won't see, but these are probably filmmakers you will eventually hear about. And so a lot of people go to Slamdance, it has to be a first feature, can't have distribution. And they're networking there, meeting each other and showing off their stuff and really learning about how to make movies still. So it's kind of like a farm system in a way. And I think if you're talking about where independent truly independent or people risking independence where it's happening. It's probably more happening up at Slamdance in a, in a lot of ways. But I think that um, the thing I noticed and the thing that I think is extremely valuable about going to Sundance, the trend I picked up on, not across the board, but there really seemed to be a, a consistent theme in the films I saw of female characters having to take charge of situations and male characters who were either uh, clueless or <laughs> actively villainous. And it's a really interesting thing happening in movies, and this is like ground zero in a lot of ways for that. Like, you're seeing new new voices, even if they're coming up through the Sundance Institute, um, expressing these things. And I think if you're an aspiring creative and you come to this festival and see what's happening, you'll see where things are moving. You're, it's kind of the tip of the spear. So whether or not it's going to get that Amazon or Apple deal, it's still this is, there's a reason for that, or if it's going to be on Netflix in three days. These are, these are the things that are happening in the culture. These are the things people are writing about and the stories people are telling and the stories people like at Apple and Amazon and Netflix are going to buy. And it's, it's, there's a moment happening with that. Even it, So in like Death of Dick Long, the, the white men <laughs> are really these goofy nim nimrods. And in like things like Hala, the, the, there's a lot about patriarchy, even though it's a very different culture and a lot about confronting a patriarchal rule, essentially. And in a movie like Paradise Hills, it's sort of like a sci-fi take on very much the same idea. And in, uh, the doc I saw, Apollo 11, was about a world very different from now where almost Everyone in control and power is a white man. So there's a lot, I think you could see a lot of connections in what's happening and where we're moving. And if you come to Sundance and you you're, you might be looking at what are the cre what's the creative direction? What's at the fore of, of what people are going to be creating and what are people thinking about? Um, so that was my take, really. I thought that was fascinating. It felt like an uh, Miss Purple was another example. It's like there's a girl a daughter who has to take care of her father whose brother is not really stepping up to the plate. So again, it was like I kept thinking about all the characters in the movies I saw at Sundance in one room together and how it was a lot of women who had to work very hard to protect themselves and protect the people around them and a lot of men who were, quite frankly, not really pulling their weight or actively being destructive. And I think that says something about where we are right now. I will also say that um, uh, in, along sort of the same vein, uh, we have, I have really noticed uh, the shift in gender polarity here. I think like 
if you listen to our podcast for the next 10 weeks, um, more than half of my guests were female directors uh, or female DPs. And it's it's just a shift. You know, it's not something that I specifically went out for. I didn't like go out and be like, oh, I'm going to interview a lot of female directors. These are just the movies that I was interested in, uh, which I think is really great. The exact same thing happened to me. I just wanted to piggyback is that I just picked the movies that I really wanted to see. And I suddenly found myself interviewing a lot of female filmmakers. And there was no, it wasn't like I went out of my way to do that. I just saw those movies. They were interesting. They were good. And these were the stories they were telling. And I think that's really cool. Like just because it didn't it didn't come out of any kind of motivation to do that exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, them that follow, uh, I have a podcast coming out with those two. There was a co-directing team, uh, Greener Grass, co-directing team of just two women. They're just movies that are really good, um, which has been very refreshing, I think, because we are seeing those new voices in a way that uh, is a very singular style. And I'm more focused on that style or that craft, I think, than any sort of social agenda, which has been really awesome. And it'll be interesting, too, this year, Sundance had an initiative for the journalists and critics that were coming that I think at least half would be of diverse backgrounds and of LGBTQ backgrounds as well and people of color. So while we, you know, are picking the films that we want to see and they happen to be directed by women or people of color, I think it'll also be interesting to see how they're covered going forward because now access has been brought, uh, you know, in the audience as well, as well as the people working on the screen. So it'll be see more kind of blogs, new kind of websites that are covering this material. And the more coverage it gets of that nature, maybe it helps sell or brings even more attention to it that would previously have been ignored. Well, I think on that note, uh, we can say goodbye to Sundance for 2019. Um, It's been a trip. (laughs) We'll be back uh, with the first of our interview podcasts on Monday. Uh, We got a whole bunch of great stuff. Um, George and I have been hustling around, uh, and uh, it's been really great to have us all together. We're, you know, bi-coastal now. Emily is dead. She came back to life. Uh, she's here. Um, it's been great. So I don't know. Do you guys have anything else you want to say before we wrap up? I'm sorry for all the editing you're going to have to deal in the podcasts I recorded. That's fair. <laughs> it's been a pleasure sharing a room with you. <laughs> Nothing bad has happened. <laughs> just just keep me updated. You know, I, I, I want to get out of here with a clean bill of health for the rest of you. Uh, you know, I don't want to be the one responsible for bringing the, the plague down upon your houses. So, uh, you know, <laughs> let me know. I'm going to wipe that mic down before uh, this next round table. We might have I to have lose another mic. You know, just put it in the garbage disposal. <laughs> so uh, a pre, pre-advance apology to the uh, several filmmak- short filmmakers I'll be talking to later today um, <laughs> if you do get pneumonia. But luckily, it seems like pneumonia isn't as contagious. <laughs> I don't know. I'll get another voicemail in four days. (laughs) We'll see what kind of pneumonia Ryan has, and we'll update you, fellow listeners, uh, next week. So, yeah, thanks again. Uh, Should we do our Twitter handles? I'm Jim underscore John underscore Jim. At George Edelman. I'm at Ryan B. Koo. I'm at Eric Wurz. And that's Eric with a K, just in case anyone gets mistaken. It's not E-R-I-C, it's E-R-I-K. Thank you. Great. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 